Genesis chapter 2 is in some ways a reiteration of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I would argue maybe better still to understand its nature is that it's a close-up look at what we saw more broadly uh, in Genesis chapter 1. It's almost as if uh, Genesis 1 sort of sets the stage, it creates this uh, theater of history, and then in Genesis 2 we're introduced uh, to our cast of characters first, though we need to remember that chapter 2 begins with the seventh day, uh, this day of rest. It's not my uh, calling in this brief message on Genesis 2 to uh, break down for you various and sundry views on the Sabbath and on the Lord's Day. Uh, maybe it would be helpful, though, to know and to, to make this point uh, at least that one of the things that's important to remember about uh, the concept of Sabbath is that this is something that we would call in theology a creation ordinance. This is not something that God simply gave to the children of Israel as their call to go into the promised land, as their call to be God's set-apart people. This concept of Sabbath is like the idea of marriage. Marriage is not something just for believers. It's a gift of God to all people everywhere, whatever faith they might uh, embrace or not embrace. In the same way, the concept of Sabbath is uh, a creation ordinance, something that uh, extends over the whole of the created world. Now, whether that means we ought to have blue laws, that's not my uh, uh, part of my discussion today, I just want you to understand it's not uh, merely a ceremonial law because it's here before the giving of the ceremonial law. Now, uh, we mentioned when we went through Genesis chapter 1 that one of the things that God did was uh, repeatedly come and assess his work uh, in the creation. And we, the, the refrain was constant, and the Lord saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. Now, I think I mentioned then that one of our weaknesses that comes with uh, the ease uh, with which we have access to the Word of God is we lose the capacity to be surprised. We know what's coming in Genesis 2, and we know what's coming in Genesis 3. And in knowing it, we're not shocked like we should be. Well, we know that Genesis 3 is going to introduce us to the villain in the story, the first villain, not the last villain, uh, but the devil himself in the form of the serpent. Well, in Genesis 2, what's interesting, after God says in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, but before Adam and Eve fall into sin, before the serpent shows up on the scene, in Genesis 2, there is a place where God says something was not good. What was not good before sin came into the world? Well, the text tells us, and God saw, or, and God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. Now, that text, that 
uh, you know, beginning of the story, the beginning of the, uh, of the notion of family and of marriage, it's, it's powerful. And I, I've always said that if we were to, if there were such things left anymore, if we were to walk down to the local uh, Christian bookstore and, and we were to check out the section of the bookstore that deals with uh, a Christian view of marriage, and we were to just grab all of those books off the shelf, i am pretty confident in of saying that every single one of those books will look at that text. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's good. That's right. That's proper. So they should. The problem is they probably, all these books would probably take a different approach to answering this question. What was not good about man being alone? What was the problem with man being alone? What struggle, what problem, what challenge was Eve made to be a helper for? If there were a a, a sort of Christian version of uh, John Gray's book, uh, men are from Mars, women are for Venus. I, maybe there is, I don't know. Uh, but if that was the kind of book we would find in the Christian bookstore, it would probably argue this. It's not good that man should be alone because man is uh, brutish and uh, emotionally stunted, uh, afraid of his feelings. And so uh, God made Eve so that Adam would uh, learn to be more tender so that he would learn to uh, be more in touch with his feelings, that that he would get uh, in, in touch with his inner woman. That would be one of the reasons that might be given. If there were a, a marriage humor book, you might find someone arguing, well, it's not good that man should be alone because, you know, men really don't know how to dress themselves. Uh, we're the kind of creatures that that wear polka dots and, and, and plaids together and don't think anything of it. Uh, and so, you know, Eve is made to make sure that Adam doesn't go around looking like a doofus. Well, that, of course, that answer won't work because Adam and Eve at the time had no need of clothes at all. Well, let's answer the question ourselves. What is the Bible's answer to the question, why was it not good that Adam should be alone? Well, I think I mentioned in my introduction to the book of Genesis how much I love uh, the thickness and the richness of these first few chapters. I think I mentioned that I once did a series, and I may do it again, uh, a systematic theology built out of Genesis 1 through 3. It was called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned from Genesis 1 through 3. Well, the Bible covers all sorts of things in Genesis 1 through 3. But that said, one of the great things about Genesis 1 through 3, as we study it, as we seek to see what God's trying to tell us, is we're blessed to have a little tiny world. There's not all sorts of geography that we need to be concerned about. There's not a cast of thousands. In fact, there's a cast of just a few. Uh, there's not, uh, you know, decades and centuries and millennia of history for us to keep track of. It's a little tiny new world with just a tiny number of people. And more importantly, with just a tiny problem, if you, I don't even know if I want to call it a problem. One challenge. There's only been one challenge that's appeared yet in this garden. 
You see, the only responsibility mankind has ever had, the only thing we truly need to do, is not eat, it's not drink, it's not uh, be true to ourselves. The only thing we need to do is to obey God. And the only thing Adam needed to do was to obey God. And again, because this is so early on, we have a profoundly uh, limited exposition at this point of the law of God. What is it that God called Adam to do? Did God say to Adam, make sure you don't dress like a doofus? No. Did God say to Adam, make sure you get in touch with your feminine side? No, that's not what God said. Did God say, make sure that you, I don't know. Well, we do know what he did say. We know that God commanded of Adam and of Eve that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the earth and subdue it that they would rule over the birds of the air, over the fish of the sea, and over everything that creeps upon the ground. And that they would do this in the context of being God's image bearers, God's vice regents reigning under him in obedience to him and for his glory. That's what they're there for. That's what they're made for. That's the charge. That, friends, is the covenant of works. Now, this can get a little messy here, and I, but I'm going to ask you just to, to, to pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. Because I think it's helpful, and I think it's understandable. What I want you to get is this, that the covenant of works is gracious and kind and condescending. When we describe the covenant of works as a covenant of works, what we're trying to communicate is this, that there was a responsibility and a duty to fulfill all that God required and that their reward would be based upon their fulfilling of this law. If you obey me, God is saying, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. On the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. There, there's, that's the element that looks like works. But what I want you to get is that it's not like God owes them anything. God has blessed them profoundly, called them to, to live in this paradise. He's walked with them in the cool of the evening. He's given them each other to love and to, and to work together. He's, he's poured his kindness out on them from beginning to end. This is not strictly a contractual relationship where God says, if you do this, I'll give you that. There is kindness and there's grace. But there is this obligation, this covenant of works. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to see what becomes of this covenant. But for now, I want us to remember that it happens. I want us to see and to rejoice 
in God's goodness and kindness and his goodness in bringing Eve into this equation. It was not good that man should be alone. God made Eve to be a helper, suitable, fitting. That's what help meet means. Meet's not just a, uh, a fancy Englishy uh, version of mate, a help mate. It's a help meet that is suitable, fitting, appropriate. And from that, we understand a couple of principles uh, that are going to shape the whole rest of the rest of the Bible. One, we understand that because Eve is made as a helper suitable to Adam, because Adam uh, exclaims, this is now bone of my flesh and uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh uh, and, and just rejoices over her, we understand that Eve, and by implication, every woman born after her, is of the same value, the same dignity, the same import as Adam. She is not less than Adam. Despite that, well, I shouldn't even say despite that. In addition to that, however, she is made to be a helper to her husband. She is called before the fall happens to be in submission to him despite her being equal to him in value. Now, friends, this is not uh, as odd as it seems because the same is true with respect to the Trinity. The Son is of equal dignity and value and power and glory and everything that you can predicate about the Father is true of the Son in equal measure. He is every attribute of the Father. He is infinitely so, just like the Father is. And the same with the Spirit. And yet... The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Equal in value, but one submits to the other in the relationship. Exactly how it is and how it's supposed to be in a marriage relationship. My stars, my wife is my spiritual better. She is a far superior prayer warrior. She is much more uh, adept at, at, at living in light of God's presence with her at all times. She has a deeper trust in him, a deeper connection to him than I do. And because of that, she understands that despite my lacking in credentials, my office is such as the husband is the head of the house that she is called to honor me and to submit herself to me. It's not a question of ability. It's not a question of value. It's a question of roles. The same thing happens, by the way, in the military. When you're a, a sergeant and you salute the lieutenant, you're not saying to the lieutenant, you're a better person than I am. You're more valuable than I am. You have more skills than I have. You're not saying any of those things. What you're saying is your role is a leadership role. In fact, in the military, they tell you this and they inform you that your calling is not so much to salute the man, but to salute the uniform, to salute the office that the man occupies. So, Genesis chapter 2 has us on the brink 
of this glorious opportunity for Adam and Eve to go forth and to serve the living God, to bless and to honor him by fulfilling his command, to live in light of what they were made for, bearing God's image. And just as God manifested his glory in the creation of the world, Adam and Eve are called to manifest God's glory in the recreation of the world. It's been my contention that that one way to understand the calling of Adam and Eve is this, that that you can look at this garden that God builds here in Genesis chapter 2 as a kind of uh, model home, as if God's saying, okay, here's here's what a, a finished product looks like in this garden. Outside the garden, it's a jungle. Now, it's an unfallen jungle. It's a jungle where if you step in quicksand, you just walk across it. It's a jungle where uh, lions lay down with lambs, but it's not finished. And God wants in the exercise of dominion for Adam and Eve to go out into that jungle and gardenize it, to finish the job to show forth God's glory by faithfully exercising dominion. Now, before we close, let me say something about that word. That word dominion uh, has been in the minds of many associated with a particular uh, subset of Christendom, uh, dominionists. It's been connected with the new apostolic reformation and the seven mountains and and all of that. And because of that, uh, some people have the heebie-jeebies about the word. Well, don't have the heebie-jeebies about the word. Dominion is nothing more than rule. And it is what God calls Adam and Eve to hear in the garden. There's nothing to be uncomfortable with it about it. You don't let those other people, the dominionists, own the word. Don't give it up. Hold on to it. It's ours. It's right there in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that creeps upon the ground. Again, I want us to enter into, to to slow down, to not think about Genesis 3 just yet, but to think about the glory and the beauty of the beginning of this story and where it looks like it's supposed to go. A beautiful man, a beautiful woman in a beautiful garden, walking with God, fulfilling their calling. It's paradise. And we need to see it as such. And eventually, we'll see what comes in Genesis chapter 3.